Welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favorite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking historical fiction with Fiona McIntosh. Fiona is an absolute master of her craft. She's just released her 39th book, The Champagne War, and it's written across genres of historical fiction, crime, fantasy, and nonfiction. She teaches writing in highly sought-after workshops and will be at peak happiness sipping coffee in Paris and eating dark chocolate after buying a pair of fashionable winter boots. Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast. It's great. So, Fiona, you've you've had a um, quite a like a long winding journey as a writer. Both as when you started, you've gone through a lot of different transitions. But um, I think just before we started recording, we mentioned you you felt like you started late at forty and have managed to to punch out almost forty books since then. Um, I'd love to hear about your your beginnings as a writer, or even just like what were your influences growing up in England? Um, what were the first books you fell in love with and, and how you kind of ended up transitioning into this unusual career? Well, I think it's fair to say that I climbed into the wardrobe with C.S. Lewis <laughs> and I never fully climbed back out again. Um, so I think it was always fairy tales from early childhood that really captivated me. And I didn't grow up um, in my book taste um, right through school years I loved um, fantastical stories and I liked the um, availability of magic in those stories and I think it was when I read C.S. Lewis I teachers were quite worried that I wasn't moving into um, you know a more grown-up read and it was simply that I wasn't interested in that more grown-up read I just loved this this fantastical world and so I think that really um, set it set itself quite firmly in my heart as an important driver. Um, but I never thought of myself as a writer. And I then went on to have a, a career, you could say. You know, I was involved in PR and marketing. I worked in London and then I came out to Australia traveling and um, enjoyed an advertising career in Sydney. And then I got involved in tourism in uh, the Northern Territory where I met my husband and uh, he had been involved in travel all of his life. And so we just sort of settled into this um, wonderful symbiotic relationship that was connected around travel. He wrote about travel. I'd always traveled. So we set up a travel magazine together and essentially became publishers. So if I look at my working career, it's always been crunching words. It's mm. always been about the written word um, and conveying something to other people through the written word. And then it was at around, you know, I was 39 and hitting that sort of midlife crisis. So I'd had, I had young children. Uh, we were busy in our own business. Couldn't have picked a busier moment to suddenly have this eureka moment where I decided I know what I want to do. I want to write a book. And it came out of nowhere, nowhere. I'd never had that sort of uh, driver before, but it, it did appear in my life. It became very strong. And if I try and analyze what that's about, I think I've always been a storyteller. Mm. I think you can tell that by the long time I'm taking to answer this question, <laughs> which <laughs> that, you know, I, I like to tell a story. And usually I'm the person around the 
the dinner table who can turn a very small event into something much bigger, much maybe funnier or much more dramatic than it ever was. And the story, the storyteller in me comes out and people um, rather like that. And so I think I've always been that person that could tell a, tell a good yarn, you know, mm. and um, it, it transferred into this desire to write. Um, and I did a week long course with Bryce Courtney in oh, wow. Tasmania and he yes it was pretty amazing and it, I had the epiphany moment where I realized as he said you're already a writer Fiona you just haven't written the book and you haven't accepted that you're already a writer mm. and so it was writing on his confidence that I went home and wrote my first manuscript ever you know the the only other creative writing I'd done was at school and suddenly here at turning 40 I decided I'd have a go at a fantasy novel. And the reason I chose fantasy is because Bryce refused to let me write historical fiction, which is what I wanted to write. <laughs> and he said, you're not ready. You have no idea. And I'm giving this as a gift to you. Do not write historical fiction yet. You have to be ready. And he said, what are you reading? What do you love to read? And at that time, my boys were sort of eight, nine years old. And I was consuming vast amounts of really excellent um, fantasy fiction. I mm. never read bad fantasy. I just cast it aside. If it didn't grip me in the opening chapter, it was gone, you know. Um, and so I was reading very high quality fantasy. And if you can't get inspired by high quality fantasy, um, the stories are so immense and brilliant and, and transport you into these other worlds. Um, I was completely in love with it. And he said, write that because you'll know how to do it. And so I did. I wrote a fantasy novel called Betrayal. Um, in about five or six weeks and sent it off to the world's largest publisher of uh, this genre. Wow. And um, they came back and said, can you turn this into a trilogy? And, um, you know, because we love it and we'd like, we'd like to um, take, take this to market next year. And that's exactly what they did. That's phenomenal. Um, so I, yeah, it was a fairy tale. So I loved fairy tales and I was living that fairy tale as far as writing goes. And I've never looked back. I've never stopped writing from that year 2000. So wow. um, here it is. We're twenty years later. Yeah, and, and I mean, forty yeah, books later. Yeah, I was going to say you're averaging two books a year, which is a stunning pace. I think um, mm. I interviewed Matthew Riley um, for the for the last episode, and he was like, he he has to take just over a year. He's like, it's about a year and a half before I get it to to what I want to be. And it seems like there's a lot of writers out there who a, a year is like a a great pace. You're doubling that. Um, well, I'm doubling it. I doubled in the early days because it was really like this, um, you know, of, as I say, floodgates were opening. And obviously all these stories were just pouring out that I didn't know were within me. And when you're setting up, uh, somebody gave me some very good advice um, in my, as I was writing that first manuscript. And she said, um, what you need in a bookstore is real estate. And it was such a good line. It made such sense to me. And she said, because when you've only got one book on the shelf, no one's going to touch you. And even when you've got two books on the shelf, you're just a bit dodgy still. And it's not until you get that first trilogy out that they and they can see it selling and people talking about it that they will give you a chance, particularly mm. fantasy readers. Mm. Fantasy readers are very generous, but they like to see, for the most part, unless you're Robin Hobb or George R.R. R. Martin, um, you know, they want to see 
that the full trilogy is out before they start um, buying into the whole thing. So she said, you need real estate, Fiona. And the only way to do that is to write fast and write brilliantly. And I took it on very seriously. And I wrote fast and brilliantly, it seems, because I was bringing out two books a year. And that's why the crimes came about, because I was writing so fast and trying to get real estate in the in Dimmocks and Borders when it was open and just claim my own space. So I was nudging out all these other fantasy writers and I could have my name up there, mm. just rows of Macintosh, you know. Um, the, the publisher finally said, now you're writing too fast. We're getting, we can't, we can't publish at this speed, you know, because publishing is a bit of a an iceberg business, you know, it's a slow burn kind of thing. And they said, it's okay when you're writing fantasy to bring out two a year, but now we need to slow you down. And the really top writers bring out one book a year on a lovely rhythm. But I wasn't ready to do that one book a year. And so they said, well, write something else. Don't be so frustrating. Write something else for us. And um, I said, like what? And they said, well, what do you read? And by now I'd stopped reading fantasy because well, it's a bit of a funny thing, and I'm sorry I'm dominating this conversation, Tim, but no, when you write in a genre, <laughs> when you're writing in a genre, and particularly fantasy, where all the stories do follow a sort of a similar trajectory, um, there's a real danger that you if, you, if you're reading the same genre, that you think, somebody's stolen my idea. I was going to do that. Mm. Or I think I'm writing what Guy Gavriel Kay wrote two years ago, and you get you, you become very inhibited. And so I worked this out really early. Um, and so I stopped reading fantasy whilst I was writing it, and it did empower me to write whatever I wanted, and I didn't have to have that fear that I'm sure I've read this somewhere. Um, so I was, and I could honestly say if someone said, that's like so-and-so, um, I wasn't reading the, my contemporaries, so I... I would be able to say, well, I'm sorry, it is just coincidence if it is because, um, you know, I am just writing what's within. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so they said, you're writing too fast. Um, what do you read? And I was devouring then in vast quantities crime. And so they said, write us a crime. We would love a crime by a female Australian writer. And so I wrote the Jack Hawkesworth series. But in order not to muddy the waters, they made this really bizarre decision that I should come out under a pseudonym and it cut out my wonderful fantasy audience because I had to start again like a, a debut writer. Mm. So that was problematic, but that's how the, that's how the, um, uh, the crimes came about and how I've been able to write so fast. Mm. And so was that just a branding decision that um, if, if um, Fiona McIntosh came out with a crime novel, it would be too confusing. So let's let's turn her into Lauren Crow, and now we've got this this kind of new brand. Is 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 that the kind of discussion that went on? Yeah, that's exactly the discussion. And there was only one person in the room who fought it, and that was me. And I just said, "This is lunacy," because. I come from a marketing background and I knew what kind of lunacy this was, that the Fiona McIntosh had a, had a brand, had a name, had a following. And I also knew that fantasy readers are highly intelligent creatures who can carry an enormous new world in their brain and follow that world around in their brain with their writers. Um, and they were perfectly capable of being able to say, oh, Fiona's writing crime. I don't think I want to read crime. I think they were more than capable of making that decision. But a 
apparently the publisher didn't think they were capable of, um, they would get very confused. And I thought that was just rubbish myself. And I knew it was an error, but it was their call. I had no, I had no power really um, to stop that. And I did want these crimes to come out and they came out under this pseudonym of Lauren Crow. And so naturally they didn't get off to the blast that they should have mm. if my whole following had been a, a, a wise, even the booksellers who've now learned who Lauren Crow's have said to me, if only we'd known, we'd have sold you hand over fist um, if we'd known it was you because we know how popular you were back then. And well, I am now, but you know, back then I, I had a sort of a little cult following that would have got the groundswell going for the crimes. So it was a mistake. Mm. And um and so we had to just leave that be. And it was around that time of the mistake that I'd made the decision, I'm ready. I've written 14 big fantasy books. I'm ready to move into um, historical fiction, which was my first love and big desire to mm. write. And so um, I guess that's a great tie-in for for branding, but also to talk about genre. So f- from a few discussions I've had, it, it seems like, genre is somewhat of a branding exercise and just helping to manage people's expectations about what they're going to read. How do you think about genre when you're writing, if at all? Um, where do you think it's useful? Where do you think it falls down? Um, do, you know, do, you, do you think about it very often? Very good question, Tim. You're the first person that's ever asked me that and I do feel quite strongly about it because I think it's it's a real double-edged sword, though. I, I have to be fair that genre does make it, um, you know, there are a lot of books in the world. And when you walk into a bookstore, um, you want to be able to just cut away the flotsam and jetsam and get to where you want to go. You want to be able to say, where's the historical fiction? Oh, it's on the third floor or it's uh, the fifth shelf at the back, you know. And so for booksellers and Uh, for publishers it's very nice to be able to very neatly know where you fit and I get that so I think from a practical and logistical point of view um, having genres makes sense so I, I get that and it's also easier for the reader to know that I'm picking up this book Um, And I know it's crime, so I'm going to give it a go because it's getting rave reviews. However, I was going to say, I I sense a big butt coming. (laughs) Yeah, here comes the butt. Here comes the butt. I think we underestimate the intelligence of readers Mm. to be able to turn a book over and read that blurb and think, well, that doesn't sound like me. Or or, or to be able to open the cover and read the opening um, few paragraphs and think, well, I don't like the atmosphere of this book or I or I love the atmosphere of this book or let's stay positive. I love the sound of this. I love this this character I'm moving with and I'm, yeah, I'm going to tuck that under my arm and it's going to be one of the ones that I may or may not buy in the next 10 minutes. So I think there is a certain amount of, uh, you know, reader underestimation that goes on that a reader knows what they want to read. We all know when we're in the mood to read um, a crime or we've maybe we've read a, a long trilogy you know a fabulous trilogy in fantasy every fantasy reader knows they want to have a break because they need to let that percolate because we've loved those characters we've moved through half a million words with them we've we've mourned the loss of them through lots of death because there's lots of death in fantasy um, and maybe we're also mourning the loss of them no longer in our lives because we've finished this story and you just need a breaker, a circuit breaker. And so most fantasy readers will then perhaps pick up a different genre, maybe crime 
or maybe an autobiography, maybe an autobiography or something like that, just to break it, give them a break from it, and then they'll return to the next big trilogy. And I think most readers can work it out for themselves. So as a reader, I think we don't like everything being pigeonholed, although it's very convenient. Now, my big but is I loathe the title of being a romance writer. Mm. I really really run at a million miles an hour away from it. And so many people want to call me uh, Finna's latest historical romance. And honestly, I can feel the bile rise as the interview begins, because I think if anyone's read The Champagne War, I know it's a wildly romantic story. I know it is. And I know there's a love story in there, but it's a whole lot more than that. Mm. It's a whole lot more than a romance. Uh, I mean, people who want to read romance, the category of romance, and I there's millions of them around the world and there are brilliant writers of romance but it has a certain convention you know it's all about that love story Mm. and it you know it's all it's the whole thing is going to rest on this love story whereas mine doesn't rest on the love story I'm quite capable of killing one of those people if I so desire and leaving you feeling very heartbroken over that love story and that's not what romance readers want so I really despise that title and I'd rather be called I try and cram a lot of words in historical adventure you know um, uh, suspense and I I put as many words together to just frustrate people so that they can't pigeonhole me and it's one of the reasons why I move across genres so I can't be pigeonholed Mm. because it just irritates people where do we find you in the bookshelf bookstores well just Ask for the name Fiona McIntosh and you'll find me all over the place, which is, you know, I'm being, I'm being vexing, I know, but um, genre has its good and bad. And um, the good is what I've said and the bad is that you do get pigeonholed and it's very hard to break out of that pigeonhole when um, a bookseller wants to keep you just there, all the Macintoshes together on one shelf, you know, it's, I understand, you know, they've got a business to run and they don't want to keep running after people. They want people to be able to find me uh, quite easily. So I, I get it. But, um, yeah, it, thanks for the question. It's got no real fulsome answer, has it? It's just I do get irritated by the pigeonhole. Mm. It's interesting. I was talking with um, Alan Baxter, who's a great Australian horror writer about horror, and he was kind of lightening horror to not he's like it's not so much a genre for him it's more of a spice that you can sprinkle in any story and i almost feel like romance is the same it doesn't it could be a fantasy story it could be sci-fi it could be it could be a crime novel if you're sprinkling a bit of romance and a bit of um a love story in there it doesn't necessarily mean that's the genre and it's probably the same with comedy as well quite right and i would say Anyone setting out to write a novel um, for commercial fiction, a novel of commercial um, intent, would be, uh, you know, few uh, sh- a bit short in the in the change department um, if they tried to write this book without some sort of um, relationship in it. Um, you know, we are creatures that love relationships and we pursue relationships and we are also creatures that love love and we love to think of ourselves being in love or falling in love or sharing someone's love story. So I think exactly as you describe, I think romance in the, in the, um, in the love sense should be peppering 
um, every kind of genre there is. I think it has its place in every genre and it should be there in almost every book because you're going to please the widest amount of readers if you do because we like that relationship sort of anchoring us down into the story. And if it's a crime story, it could be between the lead detective and and uh, whoever, or it could be um, part of the, the tapestry of the background of the book. It needs to be that you're absolutely correct and hats off to uh, Alan for saying that. Um, because I think you could look at the Champagne War and you could say there's horror in there. Mm. There's that very spicy sprinkling of horror in mm. there when you're in the trenches and or you're sharing being gassed in Ypres with the very first chlorine gassing, I mean, that's about as horrific as it comes and it's real. So I agree completely um, with mm. that sentiment. And so transitioning then into, you've, you've mentioned the Champagne War, I'd love to talk about the amount of research that goes into a story like this because it's sweeping right through World War One. Um, there's, it's not just about the war, there's a lot about wine and champagne and that the kind of area as well so it, it brings a whole bunch of different streams in and i imagine and maybe this comes back to the bryce courtney thing saying you're not ready to write historical fiction yet um like how does the research compare to writing a, a fantasy novel and does that does that hamper your your pace a little bit um how do you how do you approach well, it yes yeah and that's why i've had to slow it all down now because when i was writing fantasy which was more imaginative. I was writing my own imagine, imagination. I did borrow from real world, so I did did do some research, but there was a much larger component of, of just plain make-believe in a fantasy story. When you're writing historical fiction and you are obviously drawing so strongly on world events, um, you have to pay due diligence to that. And I would say um, I was reminded by my war historian who helps me with battlefields and getting right locations and looking at topographical maps and making sure my trench is in the right place and it's all accurate and the, the way I'm, what, the way the soldiers are speaking and addressing each other, it's all accurate and correct. Um, he said, we began this conversation three years ago. Mm. So three years ago, I opened my conversation with him saying, I'm going to be writing about this. Um, and I'm going to need some help in, in these areas. Uh, it will be these uh, battles that I'd be focusing on. And he said, wow, here we are. We've got the book and it's been three years. So I would say um, the conversations open three years back. The actual work begins um, around and more likely more than rather than less than two years out. So this book, The Champagne War, began three years ago, but two years of solid, solid research, writing, editing has gone into it. Um, the actual writing is the fastest bit. It only takes me about 14 weeks to write a book, but everything else outside of that 14 weeks up to two years is all about the reading, the research, the physical locations, um, and then going back. I know people think, wow, that's not a bad um, uh, racket to be on, to be you know, going to Champagne and back several times, but you know, it's not quaffing champagne on a sidewalk in Paris. It really isn't. It's sort of you're in the bowels of some museum or you're trudging through, um, you know, marshland that was once trenches. And, it, you know, if you do it properly as I do, then you'll do it in the middle of a freezing February or a freezing mm. November to, to be able to recreate how it felt for the soldiers. And, you know, you're sinking deep into this mud and uh, you're sort of having to be 
fake the joy that you're getting you're experiencing this because it's really very unpleasant but you are then going to be able to evoke um the right feelings in the reader if you try and make it as accurate as possible so it is a full two-year journey on each of these big historicals and i think they're getting longer now i think each one is demanding so much more of me there's the champagne war as i say started three years ago but it also had five drafts i've never written five drafts of anything before never but it took five drafts to get it right and is that just um, so you putting yeah. Sorry, is that you just you putting pressure on yourself to to get it right? Why is it that that has changed? Do you think? Uh, I think there is, as you pointed out, there are so many strands to this story, and I think all of the stories are going that way. There's so many more layers. It's not just what's happening to those characters. It's what's happening politically in the world. It's what's happening um, around them in the environs that they're in. It's um, really um, blowing a bubble around them, uh, the reader, and making them feel like that world is real. Of you know the four years of war and what was happening over the course of the war. Um, how did it affect people? socially, politically, um, culturally, what did it do? So I'm taking all of this in normally. I, you know, if I go back maybe, I don't know, eight books, I just wasn't doing this level of um, digging so deep, drilling mm. so deep into the life and times of those people. Now I am, and I'm um, having to think about, you know, I have to learn about champagne, not just champagne itself today, but I have to learn about champagne um, back in, at the turn of the 20th century. How was it being, how were the grapes being grown and harvested? And, and what was the weather like? It was, it's a different weather pattern now. Mm. What was the weather like? You know, I'm doing that sort of deep research and trying to understand, was there more sun, less sun? Was there more rain, less rain? When were they harvesting? Why were they harvesting then? How did they harvest? How much machinery, how much animal or, or manpower was being used? And, and then, the war, the war changed everything. So all of that changes again in those four years of war and then over the course of the war. So 1915 was different to 16, different to 17 when we meet our characters and spend most time with them. Um, things were being done differently in, two in 1918 and the sugar shortage that I talk about, you know, wasn't there in, in 1914. So mm. it's just relentless information it's a mountain and it's and, and it's an abyss at the same time i don't know how i've managed to say that but it is a mountain to climb an abyss that you're in from the beginning um to try and climb out of this abyss of information and then think right now there's the mountain of the book to write and so it took five drafts to to actually get all the layers right get the balance right between those very dark dark parts of the story counterbalancing it with the lighter end of the story which is when you're in Epinay and you are learning about um, the champagne and the vineyards and I give personality to the grapes and and that adds the lightness and, and the bubble that is so badly needed um, in this story because of the 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 soldiering that's going on and the military operations that are going on. Mm. Yeah, I recently read a book um, called There Was Still Love by Fable Parrot, another really great Australian author, and it's set in um, uh, communist-era Czechoslovakia in Prague. Um, a lot of the book is, some of it's set in Melbourne. Um, and, like, speaking to the title, she's talking about how it's an oppressive, oppressive regime, etc., but you know, there was still love and sometimes there was still cake is the line in, in the book as well. And so 
I feel like it speaks to that. Like even during these dark times, there's these beautiful light moments of human connection um, in there. Yes. Um, and that's that's what often makes those stories so great. And come, I guess coming back to the romance thing, um, rather than tagging it as romance, just that human connection is really yeah. almost feel like that's what makes a great story no matter what genre. Exactly. And that's why I said you ha- you do not, to all the writers out there, the new writers, you don't set out on any of these books in any genre, including fantasy or horror or crime or historical, whatever it is, without that human connection that we are always searching for. Um, as a species, we're always searching for it. So when it comes to your research, I imagine that informs a lot of the setting, um, the events that are surrounding that. How much does it inform characters, if at all? Like, um, do you have a character in mind already and try and fit it into that research? Or is it more that the character emerges from that research or characters? Yeah, no, no, no. I never try and fit anything into anything. Um, I'm a very um, organic storyteller. So the story unfolds um, as as I'm writing it. Um, and in fact, I don't even plot anything, not at all. I have my poor publisher just crosses fingers and hopes there's going to be a story at the end of each year because I can't tell them much about it. You see, it's, it, I just say it's just the next book. You know, we call it the next book. Um, because I do talk about this and I know it sort of frustrates a lot of people when they hear me say it because they can't quite grasp what I mean, but I just try and put myself in the way of a story. And so really what comes first is where do I want to take my readers to next? Where would they like to armchair travel to? And in this instance, it was France. And I thought, okay, well, what is it about where in France and, and what is my, what am I going to hang this off? And it turned out it was going to be champagne that I was going to hang it off. And that was more, dare I say, a marketing decision because it followed on from pearls and diamonds, which mm. was the previous two books. And we thought, well, champagne's rather lovely. You know, it just sort of finishes, rounds that off rather nicely. Um And so I went to the Champagne region of France and put myself in the way of a story. And I very serendipitously, you can call it fate, you can call it, um, my my publisher calls it my magic because she said this always seems to happen to you. But I actually um, bumped into somebody who turned out to be a sixth generation Champenoise. And when I say bump, I mean bump. Uh, we were walking down um, the main avenue uh, uh, in the Champagne area, which is called Avenue de Champagne in Epinay, and uh, we paused outside this very pretty house. All the other buildings around us were super ostentatious and screaming out their own brand, you know, and there was this very modest still very splendid fairy tale castle-like place, but it looked really modest in comparison to the other ones. And I loved it. It was so very French. And I just paused and said to my husband, wow, if I could choose any one of these places, it would be there. I'd like to live in there. And there were tradies working on the house. And um, one of them peeled away and came to talk to us. And I realized it was a woman. Um, she was covered in paint and dust and old jeans, daggy jeans. And she said, oh, can I help you? And we sort of step back and apologize said sorry we don't mean to interrupt we're just we're travelers and uh, admiring this house and she said where are you from australia love that and she said would you like to look inside and um of course we wanted to look inside but we said but what about the owners you know um 
Uh, actually, I'd already made a break for the door. I didn't wait to be asked twice. You know, I was already legging it to the front door and then got, came to my senses and said, how are the owners going to feel? And she said, no, you're fine. I am the owner. So come on in. And she took us in. Um, and a beautiful relationship began from there. She opened champagne, got talking about it. I discovered she's a sixth-generation champenoise. She learned everything she knows about vineyards and grapes and harvesting and making champagne and balancing the flavours and um, fermentation at her father's knee um, and her grandfather's knee before that. So just this brilliant woman who's a widow, so she lost her husband really early, had to raise children whilst trying to run this business. And everything about Sophie, and her name's Sophie, everything about her, I just fell in love with her. She was just like an inspiration, and I could feel this character coalescing around us and I thought here she is this is my character and it turns out that um her she has a family name it's called it's Delancray which has sort of died out it it goes back a few centuries but it's their family name and because there were no boys born into it it just sort of died its natural death but there's no other Delancrays but it belongs to her and she said you can use that for a surname if you want, because it, it's it's mine. It's my it's part of my family. And so this girl became Sophie Delancray, and there are just so many um, parts of Sophie I've imbued in the re- in the character because the real Sophie loves um, opera, and the real Sophie talks about champagne in such a romantic way that I couldn't dream of doing it any other way um, for the character. And so yeah, I think. What comes first, I never try and uh, build the character until I know that character, until that character comes and taps me on the shoulder. So um, I, all I knew was the location and, and really the what we were hanging the story around. But the more I talked to her, I realised that during the World War One was the most dramatic years. Um, just coming out of phylloxera, the big phylloxera uh, um, disease that had just about ravaged all the world's vines, um, and just coming out of that, and then World War One starts, and it was a very dramatic time. And so I thought that's the backdrop for my story. So it just comes together by chance. Um, I put myself in the way of it, and it finds me. That's just fantastic. It's what a what a cool story about just bumping into someone, and all of a sudden it turns into like the inspiration for a character of a book. So in a way, yeah. the the research does inform everything in the novel. It's not just oh everything. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, everything. I mean, you cannot, you you certainly cannot do historical fiction justice unless you're prepared to um, get on planes or, or make your way to the destination and spend time there and live it and uh, talk to people and um, get those what I call wet memories from people if you can, um, because it's so much more informative than um, dry fact in historical books. I mean, you need to read a tower of historical books to inform yourself about the era, but then you need people and their memories and their past. And that really is so um, wrapped up in champagne because Sophie, the person, said to me, you know, when I taste champagne, I'm tasting my forebears, you know, because mm-hmm. she said their lives have gone into, they've been born and they've died in these vineyards and they're they're their life and their spirit is in this drink as I taste it. And she was so romantic about it. And so I made sure that all came out in the story itself, you know. Um, And I think it's very, very important to respect that and understand that historical fiction needs 
uh, due diligence done, um, and which is what the crux of what uh, Bryce was trying to tell me uh, all those years ago, mm. you know, that you're not ready to do this. You know, you're too new. You don't know what you're doing. You're wide-eyed <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, isn't this fun? I'm going to be a writer, you know. And then he was like, don't. You're going to fall on your face if you try and do historical fiction. So he was wise, wise words from a wise man. Fantastic. And so on historical fiction, I guess, as a, a broader genre, um, what were some of the books that inspired you early on? Um, I'm, I'm imagining that you said you don't... you you weren't reading fantasy while you were writing fantasy. I kind of somewhat think maybe that's the same now. You don't read historical fiction. Same. Um, yeah, but, I don't read historical fiction now. Mm, but, but, but so um, there are initially, some... yeah, who, who inspired you? What are some, if, if someone was to say to you, what, like, I love historical fiction. I've read all your books already. What, like, what else can I read? Um, what else can I discover mm. out there? What would you say to them? Contemporary writers, I, you know, I'm not very good at making those recommendations, but I would say anyone who loves historical fiction will love uh, someone like Sharon Penman, mm-hmm. who brings uh, more, uh, I don't want to say ancient because it's not ancient, but will take you back into medieval times and she will make um, The War of the Roses come to life for you. Um, you know, it's extraordinary writing. Or if you want to read about the, the first kings um the princes of wales you know where we get this title of the prince of wales what were they well they were kings in their own right and um you read about this particular king the most famous prince of wales who was llewellyn and um she writes about how he married an english king's princess um joanna in this tempestuous relationship and it's but it's utterly gobsmackingly good storytelling but also brings that history Mm. to life if you want to read about um uh you know richard the lionheart or uh eleanor of aquitaine i mean these tremendous figures from history um you need to read sharon penman because she just it's like they're standing you're standing in the room next to these people and she's she's a an historian and and brings it to life so brilliantly so i would not hesitate to recommend her but also even in fantasy someone like guy gabriel k i mean he mm. is using real world events from more ancient history and it might be japanese history it might be european history it might be british history but you can when you're reading it if you know anything about history you can tell what he's basing it on um and it's utterly brilliant you know and so i would say some something like that although you've got to go with the fantasy but you couldn't read anyone better than guy gabriel k in my opinion Hmm. well there's yeah there's two great ones i mean as you say diving into ancient history i've read quite a bit of con Igledon. And he's done um, historical fiction on Genghis Khan, on Julius Caesar. So there's some some phenomenal um, options there as well. Just and I totally and forgotten he, about him until he, you've you've mentioned that, and all of a sudden, <laughs> it, you know, it sparks up in your memory, and you go, "Oh yeah, that's right." Yeah, but even if you read people like um, Ken Follett and all, they're all you know, and that sort of general fiction, exciting sort of spy fiction you're going back to the um you know world war ii or maybe the cold war and it's that's still history and they're basing it all on that kind of truth and and getting those facts um although they're building fiction they're building it around a factual time and what was happening in our lives and it's it's brilliant i mean uh, you, you really you really and smiley all those sorts of characters you know it, it's more recent modern 
history, but it's history nonetheless. So that's the sort of thing that I read. Mm. If I, even though I don't read exactly in my own um, little uh, stomping ground. It's funny you mentioned um, Ken Follett because um, I found him with the Pillars of the Earth series, which is just about building churches in medieval <laughs> England, which makes it sound really brilliant. dry, but just absolutely brilliantly oh, done. But then he's you know best why? known for his spy novels. And the characters are so extraordinary and, um, you know, you just fall in love with what's going on and what's happening and, the, you know, um, it's 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 those connections that we're talking about, the human connections, um, you know, um, that makes that story so brilliant. So it, although the building of the cathedral is the motive, you could say, it's it's really all about people and the lives around it, you mm. know. And so I'm transitioning a little bit now, just back to the Champagne War. It's just come out. Um, where can people, I mean, I'm assuming people can find it at every bookstore. Um, I actually spied it in in a Target catalogue, I think, yesterday that landed on, right. on our dining table. <laughs> um, but yeah. how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to follow what you're doing, find out any news, oh. anything that's coming next? Yeah. Yeah, they, um, I've got quite a, a wonderful gang of followers on Facebook and you need to join Fiona McIntosh author page because I'm there sort of all day long checking in with people and having funny chats with whoever's um, posting to me. So I'm in touch with every single person who posts. I'll, I'll say something back or make sure they know that I've seen it. So there's a, a constant connection on Facebook, but I also put out a um, quite regular newsletter and it's quite a big newsletter um, and it's got all the latest. So they get the information first. So they'll see cover reveals and early chapters and, and they also get loads of recipes from me because anyone who follows me knows that I love to bake. And so I share my recipes through the newsletter with people um, and that goes out probably four or five times a year. And it's got about 5,000 people involved now. So it's quite a busy newsletter. Mm. Um, so they can reach me there or they can just go to my website and email me from the website and I will always respond. I'm very, very good at responding. Fantastic. I can attest to that because I, I reached out and <laughs> you responded pretty much straight away. So thank you so much. Um Obviously, the the new books come out. I, I almost shuddered to, to to ask the question, but what's what is next for you? What's what's next in the pipeline? Obviously, a bit of press and trying to trying to make sure this book is a success, and the the last bunch of research and writing is it comes to fruition. Um, yeah. But but what's what's on the plan agenda for the next six to twelve months for you? Yeah, well, you're right. Right now I'm in that sort of more promotional mode, just talking about the Champagne War. And I heard this morning that we're um, the top number one in Australian fiction. So wow. um, congratulations. Fiction. So, yeah, that's, yeah, thank that's you. So we've reached number one, which is brilliant. Um, there's only two two people ahead of me in fiction, and they're both from America. Um, both very annoying, getting in my way at the moment, <laughs> but uh, they've got legions of followers these two blokes so good on them um but yeah so that's good I've sort of reached that pinnacle and thought great I've done my job now for the publisher and now I've got to go inward again and it, it all turns inward so right now I'm in the midst of finalizing the last 
pages in the edit for a book called Mirror Man, mm-hmm. which is the new uh, Jack Hawksworth novel. I I wrote two crimes, as I told you, and they came out under that silly pseudonym. And then um, I got the rights back from that publisher. And when I moved to Penguin, um, we had these two books sitting around. And I think it's about 18 months ago now. We, I said, why don't we put out the Jack Hawksworth books and just you know, let's just let my readers know that I have written these books. So we did. And they went gangbusters. Like the audience has just really embraced this Jack Hawksworth character and then started this Bring Back Jack campaign. And (laughs) I couldn't ignore it. It's been going on for a few years now and quite, you know, um, quite demanding. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to have a chance to do this, it's going to be in this in these COVID times. So I I did write Mirror Man, and we're editing it. Will be out for June 2021. So that's the next book that's coming out, and it's, it's a lovely story. I, I lo- really love it, and it's great to come back into Jack's shoes after 12 years. Mm-hmm. I haven't walked in his shoes, and so and also a male perspective. You know, it's lovely to be a man again. Um, really enjoyed that. But there are some great, strong female characters in this story, as always with me. Um, and I am now 60,000 words into the new historical for 2021, which is called The Spy's Wife. And that will be an interwar years story. So it's in the 1930s, and it's set in Britain and Germany. And um, you know, that, that, that's by now I would normally be doing more trips, you know, to go and get those layers, but I'm having to rely on the research I did at the beginning of the year before COVID took over our lives. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm having to really focus now, turn really inward and, and, and get very focused because I know I can't get back to Germany or Britain, certainly in the foreseeable future. I don't think we'll be back um, for a year. So that's the 2021 book. And I'm researching because I always work on three at a time. I'm researching the 2022 book, which will be Australia based because it has to be um, because of what's going on in the world. So I'm busy, little hamster in a hamster wheel, you could say. <laughs> that's going to say you're an absolute beast. That's amazing. So well, on that note, I'll let you get back to tapping away on the keyboard. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. My pleasure. Um, and if anybody wants to to read Fiona's work, The Champagne War is out now um, or go to FionaMcIntosh.com and find her on Facebook. Thank you so much, Thank Fiona. Hi, this is Tim. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. Also, a massive thanks to Johnny Hawken for the intro and outro music, Sarah Bervenich for the podcast artwork, and the authors and publishers who make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice, give us a shout-out on social media, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to me personally to say hi, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Tim underscore Hawken. That's at T-I-M underscore H-A-W-K-E-N. Or you can even head to timhawken.com and get a free copy of the first book in my Hellbound trilogy by signing up to my newsletter. For a roundup of all the episodes and recommendations, you can also head to timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.
Push me 